You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. I haven't flip flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no and I've stuck to it. I didn't need to do this. I've already done a lot of war for the election. The English fought a civil war over this this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children, your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what it was right. Represent. 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 You're listening to Represent. We at Represent would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which Sin operates, the Wundri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Represent. Uh, This is our final show of the year, which is very exciting, but it's also a bit sad. Um, Sitting with me is our usual hosts, George, Bridie, and of course Mimi, and I have today as well Samantha Ratnam joining the show again, our Victorian leader of the Greens and member for Northern Metropolitan Region. How are you, Sam? I'm really good. Great to be with you all. It is great to be here. Um, so the election was now two weeks ago. Um, can you take us back to the night? Uh, you on the ABC panel. Um, and when the results started rolling in, how were you feeling and what were your expectations for the night? Uh, it was a really big night. We were so pleased with the results that we started to see come in and have since come in. And I think uh, not many people know, but the count's still continuing. It's still it's two weeks after the election, but we've got another few days of counting for the upper house until mm. Tuesday. We anticipate to know the final results. So it's quite a long waiting period, but so pleased to see those really incredible swings to the Greens. Um, we have increased our representation in the lower and the upper house, which was uh, one part of our goals for this election. Uh, breaking through in the seat of Richmond has just been historic for the Greens, and it's the first time the Greens have won four lower house seats at a general election in the Victorian Parliament. So that's quite historic for us. That's no small feat, taking on the big two-party system. We've won back the seat of Southern Metro that we lost at the last election, and we're still in contention for one to two more in the upper house which will take our party room from four to potentially seven or eight so potentially doubling our party room so we're really pleased and proud of the campaign that we ran a really positive future focused campaign our candidates did a great job and we wait and see now the next couple of days for the final results. Yeah, it'll be exciting to see what happens. So at the beginning of the night, it was projected that your party was going to win quite a few seats. You had almost like five or four new seats to win. Um, Can you tell us why you think those seats ended up going to major parties despite quite the strong green swings that you speak of? Well, one thing that happens on election nights is that the batches of votes come in at different parts of the night over the next day and you 
often when seats are very close, you might not know for a couple of days. We knew some of our seats quite early. So Richmond was quite definitive. In fact, all our lower house seats were quite definitive. Um, the ones we eventually won, we won, you know, within a few hours, we were able to tell the trends, even though the vote was still being counted, the last bits of the vote, but that's what you can tell with the trend. We saw swings in places like Footscray, which was, you know, neck and neck for a while, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Preston, Albert Park, Pasco Vale, and we had predicted and anticipated that we could make these seats marginal and they would become Greens versus Labour contests for the first time. So we saw that vote um, really go up in the first few hours. Of course, as new batches of votes come in, it settles in different places. But if you look at the results for all of those seats, in places like Footscray, we've made them Greens versus Labour seats. In Preston, it's Green versus Labour. In Pascovale, a two-party uh, preferred swing in all those seats actually quite significantly to the Greens. And while we might not have been able to win them this election, we are building for the future and it tells us where we need to focus for the next election. And that's how we eventually do win more representation it happens over a couple of elections and you build for the future. So we're in a really great position to increase our representation even more now at the next election. Right. Yeah, and just, I guess, touching a bit more on that, um, and not to say that it was it went one way or the other, but looking to the future for the Greens, obviously a young party, a lot to learn and a lot to push for in the future. What were some of the things you thought you might have learnt from this election campaign and some things that maybe could be done differently in future elections? One thing that we saw, if you look at the trend, and the polling was giving us this trend, the federal elections started to give us really strong signs of this trend, and I think we talked about this the last time I was here before the election as well, is that we're continuing to see the vote for the major parties decline. And while Labor was able to form a majority government um, after the results of this election, it vote, its vote still declined. The vote for the Liberal Party declined. The vote for the Greens went up. The vote for progressive parties actually across the board went up. That's really hopeful for politics. And so your vote can go up and it might mean that you're able to win some seats. Some places we just weren't able to pip it over the line. But as I said, it helps you build for the future. I think we're going to start to see this trend continue that we've actually broken the back of the two-party system, which we've wanted to for a long time. We've got places across the world that... Um, operate with multi-party democracies where you've got a really big range of views. You've got to work much more collaboratively. So I'm really hopeful for the future after seeing what happened at this election on the back of the federal election. Australian politics is changing. Victorian politics is changing. So we're taking all those lessons. And of course, after an election, you think about how you ran your campaign and things you could have done more. And you always want to do more, um, particularly in hindsight. So we're at the process now of debriefing and taking on some of those lessons. But Contextually, political context-wise, something really interesting is happening. And that's a really good segue into something that I wanted to ask after that, because um, as you mentioned, in a lot of the world, there's, it's not just a two-party political system. And being that in Australia, we probably have had that for a while. And one of the things that I think stuck with me from the Greens in previous state elections and federal elections is um, I don't always get the sense that the Greens, and I know... Greens leaders have said this as well, is that their main objective is to ensure that the Liberals don't get elected or the Coalition don't get elected. And that's almost like the overarching aim. When is it going to kind of transition to being like a Greens or bust kind of thing where 
in a way, like the Greens are seen as a major threat to, you know, or a major player within making governments or making direct plays or making a coalition. Well, I hope it's sooner rather than later. And, you know, these things happen often not in a linear progression. They'll happen quite quickly. There's acceleration points. We saw it at the federal election result as well. We went from one in the lower house to four, not just one to two. So you'll get these acceleration points. And I think what's going to happen over the next few years is the impact of climate change and ecological breakdown, we're starting to see it have really immediate impacts and people are starting to go, wow, this is actually real. You know, for a long time, people could think, oh, I'm going to try and deny it. It was a bit overwhelming. Maybe maybe it's not going to happen. And then it's happening. We're seeing floods. We've been warned about fires in Victoria. We're going to see this ecological breakdown happen and it's going to become a lot more real for people. Also, issues of inequality. You know, housing has been neglected for so long. There are more and more people experiencing homelessness now. There were new reports over the last couple of days about how bad it's going to get. We're going to see that really impact people more directly. People, because of that, are going to make different choices about who they elect. So I think we'll start to see those acceleration points where politics starts to change very rapidly because the conditions of our lives mean that they have to. Uh, And we are ready and prepared. You know, we've been working for years at local, state and federal levels. Um, We're prepared to be in those positions to support community, push governments to go further and faster. In the ACT, for example, we're in shared power with the Labour Party, so there's equal power, same in New Zealand. It's probably not far off before we start to see that become the norm, that um, you know we're in increased numbers right across the country. Great. And so something that I'm really curious about personally is like the teal kind of thing that happened at the federal election. So I think that a lot of people coming into this state election are expected to see like a large swing to the Greens, to Teals, to independents, to minor parties, essentially. But I feel like this, especially in places like Kuyong or Hawthorne and Kew, we didn't see that really at all. And they've ended up going to major parties. Why do you think that's changed so much since May? So I think there's a couple of factors that impact a state election versus a federal election. I think, and from my um, observation and uh, work on the ground, particularly in those areas where we've had independents running post the federal election, where they were actually able to get elected, we actually did see those swings towards them. Like we had TUs candidates who hadn't run before suddenly getting 20 to 25% of the vote. That's actually not very easy. Although we saw this huge momentum at the federal election, we thought you can come from nowhere. It actually takes a lot of work and a lot of resource and a lot of campaigning. So you can't underestimate just how much work it took to get to that point and what that means for the electorate. So as much as they weren't able to win seats this election, in a number of areas, it got very, very close. I think it was Mornington. It was, you know, not very many votes that separated the winner, an independent versus a major party. So they're getting they're getting close. And they might not have been able to tip over the edge. Um, and there's some other contextual factors at a state election. You know, for example, going up against a Labour government versus what happened at the federal level, where they were going up against a very unpopular Liberal government, changes the fortunes of people like those independents. But in a lot of those seats, they got very close. They made them very marginal seats. And you know what that does? That changes the politics of those areas. Those major parties cannot take those areas for granted ever again. And I think that's what we've seen in some of those um, south of the river seats, you know, places like Hawthorne, Kuyong that have gone independent or about to go independent. Those major parties, for a long time, they were set and forget seats for the major parties. They put people in there who they'd want to do other things like the treasurer, you know, who didn't have to spend much time in the electorate, but to their peril, right? They lost the seat at the federal result. I think we're going to see politics done differently because of the threat of progressive 
independence, people like the Greens. And even if you don't get the seat this time, you can change politics. Yeah, definitely. And then speaking of marginal seats and seats becoming marginal, we saw huge swings against the government in um, seats in the north and west of Melbourne, like Thomastown and you know places like that. Um, does that mean their seats that the Greens might be aiming to try and pick up next election or be at least more competitive in and make it less of a Labor-Liberal competition? I definitely think we saw this trend continue of voters saying no more, no more to being taken for granted by the major parties. And we saw that at the federal election, uh, we're seeing more of these seats become marginal contests um, at a time when some of the major parties, I was just reading a really interesting article saying in one area they had, you know, 25, 30 years ago, they had 75% of the vote, for example, for Labor that's gone down to 40 to 50% in those areas. It's changing, fundamentally changing, which means that they become a contest. That means that new parties, the parties like the Greens, like independents can put their hands up and know that it's going to be a contest. And it means those existing members and the major parties have to do things differently. They have to put resources, they have to spend time, they have to engage with the community. And I think in the West, I heard a lot of this um, on the campaign trail that they really felt neglected for a long time. They weren't getting the resources that they needed to. They were being left behind. The pandemic really laid that bare. And they were voting with their feet. And there were huge community forums. The major parties, I think the Labour Party, weren't turning up to a lot of them. And they were like, this is not okay anymore. And they voted that way. And while, again, the seat wasn't able to change this election, they're starting to get close. And often you win a seat over two election cycles. So I think the next election is going to be very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And so for probably our last question, Actually, or do you want to go? Question. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about like what you would want to do in hindsight, can you like name a few things that you wish that you would do next time or like some of the things you maybe wish you did in terms of campaigning? One of the issues um, that is always the tension is about resources because you have limited resources and you want to be able to do everything everywhere um, and it's important to be able to do it but you're not able to do that all the time so you're always thinking about where do we put our resources and you know what does that mean for the places that you can't put resources into I actually think one of my reflections from this campaign is about how people are changing how they think about politics and they are impacting the outcomes of elections like we haven't seen before. People have always shaped elections, but there's this active constituency. People are getting more active, and they. I'm really hopeful that people realise that they have so much power. Sometimes we can say, oh, our vote doesn't really matter, but we've got seats, you know, within a hundred, couple of hundred votes in Northcote. We came heartbreakingly close to that. You know, that was 180 or so votes, which means 95, 93 people change their votes next time, and the seat changes hands every vote is really, really powerful. So um, we're going to be working on how we can get our message to more people with the resources that we have. And I think those direct conversations with people, which we do on the ground, but really ramping that up because people actually want to hear a message of hope. They want to connect with who they're going to elect and that's changing politics and we're looking forward to doing a whole bunch more of that. Yeah, and so something that we're curious about um, is the... Um, the ABC panel on the election night, which you were on. So yes, we I'm sorry, I could ask. come here. I would have loved to. I was, I, was I, the I priority. <laughs> um, so can you tell us what it's like being on this behind the scenes, you know, watching the results come in? What's it and all like? to maintain, like, yeah. <laughs> good faith. It was a really incredible experience. And, you know, I've been on the other side of that 
watching the TV for those election nights for so many years because I've followed politics and cared about it so much. So it was quite surreal to be on the other side. You know, but one of my reflections about being in politics, you know, I never thought I'd be a politician when I got involved 10 years ago. I just wanted to be able to help. I knew climate change was affecting us. I wanted to do whatever I could. I thought I was just going to hand out how to vote cards at election days and that's the way I was going to help. But I got involved with people who had shared values. I got encouraged and got supported to run and ran ran in local government before coming into state parliament and all those experiences have shown me that the system that we all rely on for support our governments and institutions are actually much closer to us than we think and that was my reflection from being on that panel that night as well because I'd seen it as this you know you look from the tv this far away thing um, and wonder how we're connected to those kind of conversations about politics but being part of that conversation it reminded me once again that it's our system we should you know it's ours to shape and each one of us has a voice. And so it was it was surreal and incredible to be part of that conversation, but recognising that this political system is shared, it should be more equal, and it's quite exciting to think that hopefully your voices will be on those panels in the future and we do need a lot more young people in these spaces of political commentary. I'm glad to see the conversation about the voting age being reduced, really taking off because, you know, um, we know all these decisions are going to fundamentally impact young people. So, yeah, it was quite an incredible experience. Yeah, great. Um, well, thanks for that last input. I think, yeah, it's definitely something that affects us all and young people especially. But um, before we let you go... Oh, yeah, the game. I'm, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm putting you onto the hot seat right now and Mimi and Bridie as well and Jake, who's in the studio as well, if you want to contribute. <laughs> um, so I finally came up with the name of it on our very last episode, even though I've been doing it for such a long time. The segment is called Politicianary Incorrect, which... If you if you can work it together, I mean, like, politically incorrect. I think I just over-explained it, but anyway. It's okay. <laughs> Point of the segment is that there's an obscure quote from a politician, as there is so many times in Australian politics, and basically we've just got to name who it was, what party it was from. So firstly, say what party it was from, and then who was the elected official that said this. And this one was one I've actually been saving a little bit. <laughs> It comes down to... I'll give the pretext. That's probably just as important as the quote. Um, This came after um, some Australians were murdered in Russia by some Russian-backed rebels. So there might be a hint based on the time frame of this. And essentially, an Australian elected official said that they would shirt front Mr. Putin (laughs) um, as a result of this. And the quote goes... Look, I'm going to shirt front Mr. Putin. You bet I am. I'm going to be saying to Mr. Putin, Australians were murdered. They were murdered by Russian-backed rebels using Russian-supplied equipment. Who threatened to beat Mr. Putin up? Am I allowed to go? Have you yeah, you've yeah, got, yeah, got, yeah, got, no, got, got it. That's Tony Abbott. Definitely. <laughs> That's the one. It's pretty unmissable. I was, I, I couldn't believe, like, when I read it, like, a couple months ago, I forgot it happened, and it's like, how is that, like, diplomatically feasible yeah. in, in a contemporary world? But, Sam, yeah. as our elected official in the room, would you ever say that? <laughs> I doubt those words could come from my mouth, but I... 
I can't rule out that in future you'll say a quote that I've said back to me and say, who said that? And I'll be like, who would even say that? Like it was you. <laughs> we'll be keeping these recordings of these interviews very closely yeah. to our chest. <laughs> I look forward to it. But yeah, no, thank you again so much for joining oh, us pleasure. for the second time. We really appreciate it and all the best with the next few years you have ahead of you after the re-election. So congratulations. Thank and you so thank much. You. Thanks, thank everyone. you. You were listening to Represent here on Sin. We'll be coming back after this to finish off the year and the show. Yeah, it's our last 25 minutes on Represent for the year. How are you guys going? We're going <laughs> yeah, good. good. We're going to start off a special segment. Our recap segment. It's called Greatest it's a Hits. Recap. Yeah, Greatest <laughs> Hits on Represent. Represents Greatest Hits of the 2020s. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to talk about COVID which I know has kind of been a greatest hit of the last three years. True. But I feel like we kind of, like... I feel like I've kind of forgotten... I haven't forgotten about it, but I keep forgetting that when everyone was freaking out about getting it and the rat test is actually still this year. I keep thinking yeah. that was last year. Um, so that's kind of what I want to talk about, and I want to talk about how that influenced our politics and how both in the federal and state elections, and I want to talk about kind of connect this into international news um, and what's going on in China this week. Another country that George and I love to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Okay. Um, so let's cast our minds back to January when most Australians started getting affected with COVID-19 and having to do week-long isolations, which everyone was just pulling their hair out about. <laughs> I just remember feeling like the chaos was Did back. you get it over, like, New Year's? No, I was a bit later in February. Okay. So I still got it at the beginning, but not quite. Yeah, I got it in March. It. Yeah. George was the first. You got it in I January, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. I had... Did you have to do, like, isolation beforehand? Like, if your friend or your, like, housemate... No, had? I was the first one of my housemates oh, okay. to get it. But I think it was only... One of my housemates had to do like one more day. We all got it pretty like, oh, on par. Like once I got it, they all tested and I had my other roommate had it. Yeah. My brother had it and I didn't get it for six days. So, so I did you, two weeks. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, it does suck. Um, at this point in time as well, rat tests were almost impossible to get our hands on and we had that funny website um, where you could like punch in your postcode or something and it would tell you where um, you could get the rats from and it was just like a rush to get them before um they would be sold out and i remember running around melbourne trying to get some before they sold out and i'd always arrive at the pharmacy too late um and so because of this voters were really fed up with uh the Morrison government and the perceived lack of organisation surrounding COVID-19, such as long lines at drive-through testing clinics and a delay in receiving results. Um, so we've talked a lot on this show about how a leader or a crisis leader, someone that brings someone through a crisis, um, can usually get re-elected because people, I guess, have some kind of bond towards the idea that this person has gotten them through something quite terrible and they could do that again. But this was definitely not the case for Scott Morrison. Um, and last week, uh, the Australian election study actually released their results from, like, analysing the federal election, and they found that 30% of the population thought that the federal government handled COVID well. 
So that's a very small number. Yes, definitely. Um, and, this, <laughs> um, and this study also found that this was obviously a major contributor to voting decisions and Morrison's loss. Um, Morrison, obviously, was most ha- known for handling COVID-19, but before that, he had a very terrible publicity kind of moment when it came to the bushfires. <laughs> very much so. Um and he went off to Hawaii while the fire... Was it Hawaii? Yes, yeah. yes it was. <laughs> while the fires were happening and he obviously got called out for that and I think his image really suffered... From that and then... a very long time COVID, after that. And then the ukulele thing that brought um, Hawaii <laughs> back. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was just like a trifecta. Yeah, so this image, I think, kind of just kept carrying through. I know that his... Um, preference or the popularity like when you mm. can test how popular someone is was obviously quite high at the start of the pandemic yeah but then it just went back and i think that idea of him going to hawaii kind of started to come back in the end where people were waiting in queues for almost you know the whole day or mm. overnight couldn't get any hands and rats and i think that kind of idea that he wasn't really doing enough just yeah. kind of came back and really bit him in the butt when it came to the federal election time. I know we have to be, like, impartial, but we've got 20 minutes left on the show. I don't care anymore. (laughs) All I can say, right, about that whole saga with Scott Morrison and his unpopularity, when he abandoned Victoria, that was, like, the last straw for me. Yeah. Because, like, when he started saying Dan Andrews shouldn't be locked in. And, like, the vaccine saga where they redistributed them to New South Wales instead of Victoria when we went through the biggest lockdown ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to make in the final edit, but anyway. (laughs) Lucky your editing disaster. (laughs) Um, So we can also say that this kind of you know, crisis leader also happened with the Victorian state election, but this also, this, in contrast, worked very well for Andrews. Similar to um, Mark McGowan in WA. Mm, Yes. Um, His party won the election two weeks ago, and even though COVID wasn't really at the forefront of his campaign messages, it really shined through in very subtle ways. Um, and this campaign really was an image campaign rather than a party campaign. I feel like it really was just about Dan Andrews, even if you weren't in the Labor Party. Um, and so it was really about whether Dan Andrews would remain Premier um, or not. And I think this kind of... This idea that this is what the whole election was about kind of came through with the with COVID through the daily press conferences that we had. Like, I feel like... You know, Victorians came very connected to like turning that TV on and seeing that awkward man's face. We've got stubby coolers at home that have pictures of him on that say "Get on the beers." Yeah, like, (laughs) like so much of his face is just a part of like his politics. Um, That was exemplified in the Triple J Top Hundred when yeah, where they won that won the thing, Um, and the Liberal Party kind of also. I mean, jumped on this wagon, but maybe not. In a, maybe it didn't actually benefit them. But you know, they criticised Dan consistently throughout his pa- campaign with slogans like "Don't let Dan get away with it," mm. um, and it was very personal. Um, and again, COVID isn't explicitly mentioned in that mes- message, but I think we can agree that it is his handling of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, 
And the Libs also made their tactic to focus on revitalising the health sector with Labor and then Labor taking a bigger focus on transport. And I think, again, them kind of taking this jab at how Victoria's health system has been dismantled is, again, kind of reflecting how COVID has influenced our politics. I feel like I'm writing an essay. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit essay, but it I know. <laughs> it's a live essay. Um, and then finally, I want to talk about some more current news about COVID. And this is ta- taking place in China, where last week a building fire in Chinese northwest Xinjiang region led to the deaths of 10 people. And it has been reported that strict COVID-19 regula- regulations may have aided these deaths, with fire trucks not being able to reach the building in time because of COVID-19 blockade and abandoned cars from people, like, rushing into isolation, just, like, being left on the streets. Um, And it has also been reported that residents may not have been able to escape the building in time because it was in lockdown, but I kind of found very differing... Like, I don't think people really want to say what's happened because, like, everything was very, like, speculatory and not very Definitely. I mean, Xinjiang is where the, like, there's all this stuff with the Uyghurs as well, Mm. so, like, it's super kind of hard to get in there and you know mm. the abc doesn't have anyone in china because i'm i'm pretty sure they don't have anyone in china because their china correspondent got kicked out mm. um so this has set off numerous protests in across chinese cities including shanghai and beijing which are call uh, calling for the end of the strict covid-19 restrictions and some are calling it the great civil disobedience the greatest civil disobedience since the de- since the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. 1989, sorry. I feel like... Um, just, <laughs> just lost your ability to read for a sentence there. <laughs> um, and this frustration has also, you know, been sparked by also the broadcasting of the World Cup. Um, a lot of... Chi- <laughs> where, you know, we've had our person on the ground here, George yes. is with us. Um, a lot of Chinese residents would watch the broadcasting, but China would be um, censoring out like images of fans with no masks but obviously like you know people can still see those images and you know they were really taken aback by seeing thousands of face of maskless fans in the stands where they are still having a covid zero policy um and so we can see through this week of news how covid still is very much playing a role in our global politics even if we might feel like it's still it's it's kind of gone here even though it's not I feel like everyone's been saying lately, COVID's still around, COVID's still around. Yeah, well, I feel like that's so interesting because, you know, in China we've got everyone saying, like, for China to stop being so cautious. But then over here we're like, we need to start being cautious again because there's yeah. so much COVID around. And then, like, in Qatar, you know, and, like, UK, I've had friends come back from the UK and they just say it's not an issue over there. Hmm. Like, so there are so many different kind of camps and all over the world it's just so weird and i think just like politically from china's like or xi jinping's like the cult of xi jinping is like a lot of these lockdowns were based around initially um him him saving face in front of china and yeah almost making up for the allegations i don't know if you call them allegations that it was caused or it was started in china at least yeah um and then obviously um the plethora of the ccp make it in a way where things are very strict and enforced and that's kind of um carried on to their covid policies i think yeah definitely i definitely think like the start of the covid zero thing was sort of like not payback but like the reverse of payback like a way to kind of prove that they can still manage mm. it even if they like it 
I mean, I think we can agree it did come out of there, whether it was, mm. like, intentional or whatever, that's not what I'm saying. Yep. But just, like, that's where the first lot of cases were. Mm. Um, a, a lot, that's been, like, that's defines Chinese, like, their response to COVID in general. It's just... Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like everything is just off the basis of it originating in China. It's I don't know if it's a shame or if it's some yeah. other thing. It's the fact that they... Th- they want to say that COVID is in their destiny, that they can do whatever they want with it, yeah. something like that. And, you know, we saw at the start of COVID, they were sending all the doctors around the world and everything and trying mm. to prove that they were, you know, they were onto it and everything. But it's just like, you know, it's a, it's a big play. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't really think it's paying off that much either because they've still got it there now. And, like, they've mm. got thousands of cases a day. And even if that's not, like hundreds of thousands that we've seen in the States and um, the UK and, and here. Um, it's still a lot compared to what they've had for two years of nothing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, we can move on to something yeah, else as we Sure. So um, my our next, well, calling this one a greatest hit is probably a little insensitive, yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the biggest global events of the year has unsurprisingly been the war in Russia and Ukraine that started at the end of February. So I remember our first few shows of the year and we were like, oh, do you really think they'll do it? Do you think they will? And they haven't. It's been 289 (laughs) days um, since it started. So the world's been really worried about the likelihood of Russia using nuclear weapons. But I think that at the moment, there's been a lot of international pressure on them from NATO, from the UN, from all these sort of organisations that's meant that threat has kind of diminished and people don't seem to be as worried about that. And I think that um, Putin has said, you know, we won't do it unless we're attacked with nuclear weapons first. And I mean, it's a bit like, really? I don't know. But, you know, they haven't done it so far as yet, so... I guess we'll just have to wait and find out about that. Um, We've seen missiles that landed in Poland, which is not part of the war zone, obviously, which were at first thought to have been Russian and then they were thought to have been Ukrainian and there was just kind of a lot of... bit of a lack of clarity around that, I thought. Um, At the moment, we're seeing packages with, like, covered in blood or with, like, animal eyes in them arriving, being sent to... Um, Ukrainian embassies and missions around the world, which I think is so weird. So, like, the Ukrainian sort of government is calling it, like, a scare, a terror campaign almost. That is really bizarre. Like, you know, like, embassies, like, Australian embassy, UK embassy, like, that sort of thing? No, like, the Ukrainian embassies in each country. Yeah, but around the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, That is so... It's so... so I mean, it's gross. I I know. And how does it even get through the pose? Yeah, literally. Like a butt on it. So gross. So NATO's Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, has said that Russia is attempting to freeze the fighting in Ukraine over the winter to prepare its forces for a renewed assault early next year. So by freeze, I believe that he means, like, to stop the fighting or to kind of keep Ukraine in at the point that it's currently at, which is a point that the world is quite concerned about because there's not much power. Russia's done a lot of damage to Ukraine's electricity grids, so they're on really severe electricity power heat rations, and it's already really, really, really cold over there. So, mm-hmm. like, everyone's I can't pretty... even imagine what that would be like. Yeah, literally. So they've got, like... I've seen videos of, like, reporters there that have seen they've had, like, four hours of power that day. And, like, it's snowing. So, oh, oh, my God. No. Um, 
With that fight, like, freezing the fighting, so that wouldn't benefit Ukraine? No, I don't think so. So Stoltenberg is urging NATO allies to continue sending weapons to Kiev over the winter and adding that the conditions for a peaceful settlement to the settlement to the war are not there now. So, you know, apparently that in order to reach a peaceful settlement we need more weapons, which kind of seems like a bit of an oxymoron to me, but he knows more than I do, I suspect. The European Commission has actually just proposed a ninth round of sanctions on Russia. So we've seen a lot of countries put a lot of sanctions in, including Australia, on wealthy Russian individuals and Russian businesses, but they have not had that much of an impact. I mean, I'm sure that they're causing, you know, economic devastation in Russia, but it's not stopping them with the war. Um, Close to 500 Ukrainian people were killed by Russia in the early weeks of the war, according to a report that's just come out in the last couple of days, Um, and they've all got signs of being intentionally killed, which is like, well, it is a war. But, I mean, that feels like what you would expect. Maybe he means, like, they weren't... Like, I feel like when I think of that, I'm like, maybe intentional is something that's different to just like fire towards both right. parties do you know what i mean like, so yeah, like yeah. if you're firing at each other that's unintentional you're just yeah protecting your protecting your war space or whatever yeah maybe he means more like direct like yeah missiles maybe. or something yeah um so just in the last few uh, the last day or so america and russia have done a prisoner swap which i thought was quite interesting so Brittany grimer has been um in prison in russia for I think close to a year now. Is that right? I don't it's, even know who that is. I think is. a bit less, maybe. A bit it, less. Yeah. I th- that might just be my time frame because yeah. it doesn't seem like this was 280 days ago when the no, war started. Exactly. Is this the she? Brittany? she? Yeah, Brittany Grammer. She's, she's a basketballer. Yeah. She's accused of like drug charges in Russia yeah. and they've had her in prison for yeah. ages. It was long. something like she had a weed vape in her yeah. suitcase and then the Kremlin saw that as drug trafficking right yeah. so it wasn't like a full no it, it wasn't, wasn't like but they take any excuse they could of, to, yeah yeah um, and so a russian arms dealer or former arms dealer has been sent back to russia in return and this like russia have gotten the better hands out of this because this guy is not a friendly person he's no. gone out of his way to um you know bring destruction to america <laughs> and um yeah and at the end of the day it's something that russia have kind of used as a tactic um to kind of get american prisoners and then they can exchange them for these hostages which is interesting to see and yeah <laughs> i don't think it's worked out well but the question that a lot of people are saying from america's point of view is if she wasn't a professional athlete mm. would she have gotten such leniency yeah i think that's definitely an important question to be asking um so something that we've also seen across the period of the war is like symbolic people calling for peace so just in the last day pope francis has broken down and wept as he prayed for peace in ukraine during a traditional christmas visit in rome so apparently he had to stop speaking and was unable to continue for about 30 seconds and his head trembled. So he later tweeted that peace is possible and disarmament is possible. So I just think, like, it's great that there are all these people going, we need to, you know, be peaceful and disarm ourselves. But it's like, well, is that actually going to do anything? Is it just virtue signi- signalling? Or yeah. Is it, yeah. I, like, I'm sure the Pope believes it. 
you know, but what's that going to do? Putin isn't Catholic. He's yeah. He's Russian Orthodox, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't really know who he thinks he's appealing. Like he's appealing to Catholic civilians, but yeah. I don't know what Catholic civilians. Mm, Ukrainians are do. and Russians aren't Catholics. Yeah, <laughs> neither of them exactly. are. So it doesn't really make sense. But yeah, it's. I think that's. I think undoubtedly probably been the biggest story of yeah all of probably maybe even the last two years as well. Um, and not quite sure what will happen in the future, but I guess we'll quickly touch on. We've only got a few minutes left, but I'll quickly just say um, the federal election as well obviously was a key part of Australian politics in this year. Um, I think the biggest story for me was the rise of the Teals and the Greens and how that kind of has changed the dynamics of Australian politics, as Samantha said before. So just quickly... (coughs) Sorry, I have a bit of something going on, but... um, Basically, yeah, the the rise of those independents um, was a big deal, and obviously, as Mamie touched on before, the unpopularity of Scott Morrison was a key factor that kind of brought him out of government and the coalition out of government, and for the first time in seven years, I think it was, that the Labour Party had power and obviously, well, were in government and have the majority as well, so all in all, it was a big year for Australian politics as well, but... A big year for our show. Yeah. Got to have two elections. Heaps of interviews. Yeah. It's very exciting for us. And um, to finish off our show, I do have one last quote from the Politicianary Incorrect segment. Mm -hmm. And this one is by far the most Politicianarily Incorrect. Oh, I wish you did it for for Samantha. No, I could not say this. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, someone said it in Parliament. I'm sure you can say it to Samantha. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Let's hear it then. Yeah. I can't say the full quote, though. That's the problem. Oh, the swear word's in it. And it's a bad swear word. Okay. Well, that's all right. Okay. So this minister muttered once. So was in Parliament. Okay. And speaking in Parliament about. Not quite sure what they were t- discussing at the time, um, but after he spoke, the opposition, someone from the opposition, came up to speak. But the speaker shut them down, and then the initial person I'm talking about here iterated these this quote, which I won't say in full. But he said, "Ha ha ha! You're such a C." Oh, big, big word. But you can't, can't say the rest, though, we don't get any context as to what it... Like, is there any context in the quote? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. So it's someone... The, it, I've left it, it deliberately broad. Yeah, it's federal. Okay. So um, probably a liberal, because they've been in government for nine years until now. True. Um, a minister. Probably a man. Yeah, Barnaby <laughs> Joyce was a minister. He seems foul mouthed. Well, yeah, what about yeah? Or what about like oh, I can't remember who they are, but one of those. Oh, I can't really remember. Actually, don't worry. Anything? No, I feel like if I, I feel like if I get it, gonna be like defamation if it's the wrong person. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Um, who are the ministers? Peter Dutton was a minister. Um, no, I feel like he wouldn't. Scott Morrison, I don't think. No, would. he would never. He's too Pentecostal. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's one of those very conservative liberal men. 
Yeah, and I, I can't think of that many that are in. Like, I feel a ministry. like there's a f- there's someone on the t- like, it was kind of like I was doing this is so random. I was doing <laughs> so an assignment. Angelus is a former. Okay. Oh, not in anymore. I no. actually kind of think I know his is bad kind. Okay. Uh, I was doing this assignment this year about the Victorian um, program that they did in schools about like, um, like uh, you know, gay equality and like that that program that they did about you know gay trans rights and how obviously there are some liberal ministers who are against it and there was one like really prominent one who said a lot of horrible things and he's not in parliament anymore i reckon maybe it's him what's his name (laughs) (laughs) do you know what he was like a minister for or anything when that thing was was probably like 2012 wasn't he oh that's a while ago yeah well he was Um, the liberals weren't in government then Oh, true. Oh, but it probably would have been a Victorian one. Okay, I'm going to give you one, one hint actually, because that was a, we're yeah, running okay. really low on time. Okay. Maybe you should okay. just tell us. Give Wait. us a hint. Give us a hint. Okay, this this person is like the clown of Australian politics. The clown? Barnaby Joyce or Tony Abbott. I don't think Tony Abbott would do I'm We can't have ton- two Tony Abbott quotes. No, no. The clown of Australian... <gasps> is it... No, it's not Clive Palmer. You've got ten seconds before the show. I think it's I think it's Barnaby okay, Joyce. Barnaby Joyce. No. Ugh. Is it obvious? Should we have known who it is? Christopher Pine. Oh, <laughs> of course, yeah. he's the clown of yeah, politics. No, that does make sense. Uh, I was disappointed <laughs> in that. But we are officially out of time right now and I'm getting a weird notification on my screen. But at the end of the day, you have been on represent for a year. And it's been lovely to talk to you all for this time, including Braddy and Mimi. It's been a pleasure to have you both. And as always, remember to stay political. You've been listening to a Sin Media podcast where young people run the show.